Welcome to the Richard Roper Podcast. The summer is winding down. All the big summer releases have been released. We're going to be talking about fall movies. Uh, I think maybe the next podcast or the one after that, I've been compiling my list of the fall movies. I'm really looking forward to seeing. But before we do that, before we do that, folks, uh, I wanted to celebrate uh, the anniversaries of three great films that came out in August's of the past we're going to celebrate three seminal films three of my favorite movies of all time but first here's your reminder the richard roper show is brought to you by americaneagle.com studios the digital landscape is changing rapidly and to compete in today's online business environment you need an experienced partner since 1995 americaneagle.com has partnered with companies of all sizes offering web design web development e-commerce, mobile apps, and digital marketing to drive your overall business's success because they believe that today's online world is your online opportunity. Visit AmericanEagle.com to get started today. Okay, this is kind of amazing for those of us who were around. And then listen, I was a kid when this came out, relatively speaking, but believe it or not, it's been 50 years since the release of American Graffiti uh, George Lucas's seminal coming-of-age nostalgia, comedy, drama, action movie was released in August of 1973. Guys, for those of you who don't remember or are just catching up with this, it's hard to overstate the impact that American Graffiti has had on the culture, uh, not only in terms of various actors who went on to become big stars, including, well, Ron Howard, people knew him already as a child actor, but then his role in American Graffiti basically led to Happy Days. He played essentially the same character. Uh, Richard Dreyfus, one of his early roles, a terrific cast uh, throughout. Young Mackenzie Phillips, uh, Paul Lamott, who has a great role here. Suzanne Summers has a cameo. Candy Clark is in the movie. Uh, on and on it goes. Rock and roll has been going downhill ever since Buddy Holly died. We're finally getting out of this turkey town, and now you want to crawl back into your cell, right? You just can't stay 17 forever. You know, it doesn't make sense to leave home to look for home. There's a great, big, beautiful world out there. I do want to talk a little bit first, though, guys, about the soundtrack, because this was such an incredible thing. Okay, so first of all, American Graffiti, as we mentioned, George Lucas had done uh, THX 1138. He was, you know, he and uh, Coppola, Scorsese, Spielberg, uh, De Palma, all these, you know, young cowboys, filmmaking cowboys, I don't think any of them were actual cowboys, were starting to work, were writing films. Uh, we're starting to get uh, feature directorial debuts right around this time, late 60s, early 70s. Uh, George Lucas essentially based um, American Graffiti on some of his own experiences growing up in Modesto, California in the late 50s and early 60s. And it's been said actually that the different characters, kind of the nerd, the wannabe writer who was going to go away to college, uh, the the guy who was the, the cool drag uh, race driver, uh, the regular guy that Lucas felt there was a little bit of him in all of those characters. So American Graffiti comes out in 1973. The studio at the time 
they were like, what is this exactly? This seems very episodic. It's got all these old rock and roll tunes on the soundtrack. And we're going to talk about that soundtrack in just a second. Uh, and they almost made it a, a television movie. They thought, well, maybe this is a TV movie. It doesn't have big stars. You know, Harrison Ford again, uh, who's got a key role here as the guy who comes, you know, from another town looking looking for uh, the big uh, drag race. Harrison Ford was has yet to become a, a major star. So they were going to do uh, a made-for-TV movie, maybe a two-parter out of American Graffiti. And it was Coppola. It was Francis Ford Coppola who swooped in and said, listen, uh, I'll buy the rights to this myself and release it myself as a theatrical film if you're thinking about doing that. Or I can come aboard as a producer and... Francis, 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 that should have been like his uh, hybrid name, Francis, uh, Francis Ford Coppola, of course, by 1973 was a big, big deal. He had, you know, done uh, written Patton uh, and, of course, had done The Godfather. So he was the, maybe the hottest uh, director of the last 15 years at the time in Hollywood, a huge could do anything. Uh, so now for American Graffiti, for the posters, they were able to say from the man who gave you The Godfather. That's pretty cool, right? I should mention too, by the way, but I'm just getting the heads up from the, the crack production team. Coppola co-wrote uh, the screenplay for Pat. That was not a solo effort, but he was a co-screenwriter on that. Okay, so, but by then he had done The Godfather, uh, one of the greatest movies of all time. So now they were able to promote American Graffiti. Uh, this small film, which was made for uh, very little money, went on to make hundreds of millions of dollars. It really captured something with people. And again, 1973, the tagline for American Graffiti was, where were you in 62? So it was set 11 years in the past. Now, when you think about that, that's not that much of a time difference. But those were huge years in the history of America, the culture of America. 1962 is kind of considered by a lot of historians to be the real end of the 1950s in America, the spiritual end of the 50s, because in 62, there was still... You know, uh, Elvis and you know the Beatles had yet to come to America. We hadn't had the British New Wave. Uh, we were when the film came out. We were actually a couple of months away from the Cuban Missile Crisis, and then the following year, of course, 1963, the assassination of John F. Kennedy, uh, escalation in Vietnam, civil rights uh, movement, which had started, of course, earlier, but really, you know, the Civil Rights Act and huge campus protests with Vietnam, the lunar landing, the assassinations of RFK and Martin Luther King. Uh, all of this stuff happening in the, uh, all the way through the 60s. In the 60s, a lot of people kind of feel ended right around 1973. So this really kind of covers the difference between the release date of American Graffiti and the time period it's set is monumental, the changes that had happened in America. Now, for example, like if you released a nostalgic movie right now in 2023 about the year 2012, definitely a different time. Definitely a different time. Pre-Trump, pre-COVID a lot of things but in terms of the popular culture i don't think there you know there are that many huge changes i mean artists like taylor swift and rihanna and uh etc cetera, etc cetera, were were huge in 2012 and they're still huge in in 2023 you know you'd have the black eyed peas you'd have lady gaga on your oldies soundtrack from 2012 now let's talk a little bit about that soundtrack uh, for American Graffiti. Okay, so the film is set in 1962. Most of the songs, however, in keeping with the spiritual theme of the movie about coming of age and the transition, it's a story, of course, of about a bunch of high school graduates and what they're going to do next uh, in, a, in a world that seems kind of certain but is quickly going to become very uncertain. 
Uh, most of the songs are from the 50s. Uh, I think about 80% of the songs in the American Graffiti soundtrack are from the 50s. So they were real oldies in 1973. By 1973 in the United States, of course, not only had we already seen the Beatles come and go, but you had uh, all kinds of, you know, rock and roll was happening then, right? In 1973, you know, the, the, you know whether we're talking about the Stones or the Who, et cetera, et cetera. And then, of course, the, the folk rock, you know, very different music from what we had had in the late 50s, early 60s. So the soundtrack became this huge hit, first of all, with young people who weren't even around then or were just little kids, but also their parents. Now, when we're talking about a soundtrack, guys, in the 1970s, 1973, the American Graffiti soundtrack was a double album, a double LP with, I think, about 40 songs on it, uh, starting with uh, Rock Around the Clock was the first song you heard uh, when the movie, when we got the opening credits. And then it ended, I think, with uh, All Summer Long by the Beach Boys, which actually came out after the time period of the movie, but that's kind of the point of it. Throughout the movie, the songs are are really the soundtrack for the film. And by that, I mean that the characters are actually hearing the songs we hear. Diegetic music, they call it. It means it's heard by the characters. It's not a traditional film score or film music where, the, where we, the viewers, are hearing music that the characters aren't hearing. Uh, the conceit here is that which this was a real radio station, XERB 1090 AM radio, Wolfman Jack, Wolfman Jack, baby. This is the Wolfman coming at you 95 times a day with all the hits, baby. So the Wolfman Jack, who was played by Wolfman Jack, he's playing the songs that we hear on all the car radios and uh, throughout the movie or in the drive-ins. Uh, and that just really struck a, a chord with people. So the soundtrack became huge. And... Up until then, I mean, listen, there had been popular soundtracks. You can go all the way back to a lot of Broadway musicals, the soundtracks from the actual Broadway musicals, the recordings of them, the cast would get together and record them separately, or certainly film adaptations of Broadway musicals, and even going back all the way to movies like White Christmas uh, from 1954, which, by the way, Holiday Inn was the movie that featured the song White Christmas, which became a perennial. And then in 1954, Michael Curtiz, who directed <laughs> Casablanca and a lot of other great films, directed the movie White Christmas. And then, as I mentioned, you know, you get like the soundtrack to, to My Fair Lady and and Camelot. And those those would do very well. Kind of very uh, Mad Men, Don Draper playing on the hi-fi in the living room in the 50s and the 60s. Then the Beatles came along and Help and Hard Day's Night. Those soundtracks were big. The Woodstock Woodstock soundtrack, of course, was huge, but that was actually a triple album of actual recordings. Uh, Easy Rider was one of the first films to have songs that had already existed, but and plug them in and make them a really important part of the movie. And then American Graffiti, it just went crazy. It sold triple platinum and really ushered in uh, the era of the movie soundtrack becoming an event. Uh, of course, uh, we were only what, four years away from the release of Saturday Night Fever. The Saturday Night Fever soundtrack with the songs by the Bee Gees and uh, Yvonne Elman and, and uh, other artists was actually already, I think, double platinum before the movie came out. It got people so excited about the film. Uh, and then over the years, in through the 70s uh, and early 80s, you had all these huge soundtracks uh, Grease, Urban Cowboy, Flashdance, uh, The Big Chill, Purple Rain, um, Dirty Dancing. In fact, I, I looked this up in 1980, 17 of the top 80 hits on the Billboard charts were songs from movie soundtracks. And it really all started with American Graffiti. But the movie, of course, is about so much more 
than the music. It's just a great story because it really captured again in a certain type of America. You know, I I I hesitate to say, oh, it was it was a simpler time because for a lot of people, the fifties and sixties were not simple times at all. But this is you know white middle class America where yeah these kids had their problems but they didn't have the same problems that a lot of other people had in america and it, and it kind of captures that but also no matter who you are what your circumstances are when you're 17 you're graduating from college 18 and you don't know what you're going to do next you think you know what you're going to do a couple of the kids were going to go on to college others were going to be stuck if you will in modesto california and it really captured that so we kind of have all these running storylines uh the big race that's going to come between the, the local guy and uh, Bob Falfa, that's the Harrison Ford character who wants a piece of him. Uh, the romance between Ron Howard and Cindy Williams, where he kind of wants to break things off, but then he doesn't. And the, the Richard Dreyfus character who sees this goddess who is a vision, or is she even real, and pursues her. Charles Martin Smith and Toad and all of his adventures. So there's so many ongoing storylines, and then they all tie neatly together. And uh, American Graffiti also, not the first, but one of the first modern films to do those closing title cards that told us what happened to the characters after the movie. Here's what happened to these characters. And I guess I'm not going to give it away for those of you who haven't seen American Graffiti or haven't seen it for a long time. You should experience it. It's a great, great film. Uh, but it's one of the saddest and most melancholy end title cards you're ever going to see. And it kind of usurped, uh, they had a movie called More American Graffiti that had most of the main characters from the original it came out about five years later. It was kind of terrible, quite frankly. I wish they'd left it alone. There are certain stories, you should just leave them alone. They're perfect as is. We never needed to see Shawshank 2 with Tim Robbins and Morgan Freeman then getting into the boat fixing business or Stand By Me for a better comparison, honestly, to American Graffiti. Like, and again, we find out what happened to the characters, and it's and some of it's quite tragic, but it's perfectly capturing a certain moment in time, whether it's a few months or in the case of American Graffiti, it's the classic one night where everything happens. Just leave it be. That being said, great film, uh, hugely influential uh, in terms of introducing or at least bringing along a lot of young actors who became huge stars. Uh, the modern movie soundtrack becoming hugely popular and uh, the multiple storylines, none, none of this brand new, but done in a new way. And no matter what else George Lucas has done, and I think he went on to do some other stuff. He wanted to do some sort of space opera, I believe, I think at the time, no matter what you want to say about George Lucas. And I think he's obviously had an enormous impact on the culture. He gave us American Graffiti, which is just a most a perfect film for what it tries to do folks love american graffiti can't believe it's been 50 years since it first hit theaters in the united states of america all right let's take a break and talk about portillo's and then we're going to come back and celebrate two other movies that were released in the month of august All right, let's talk about Portillo's. Now, they, of course, are known for their famous Chicago hot dogs with all the freshest and tastiest ingredients, right down to that poppy seed bun. And then, of course, there's the legendary chocolate cake. If you're hearing this right now, that means you are alive and near a computer. That's all you got to be. That's all you need to go to Portillo's.com and check out their entire selection of stuff you can get anywhere in these United States of America. Now, if you're blessed enough to live 
near Portillo's. Then you don't have to worry about getting online. Just go to the store, get the hot dogs, get the Italian beef, the salads, the chicken. They got it great. And then, of course, the chocolate cake, the single greatest item of all chocolate cake items in the history of humanity. You think I'm overstating that? I am not. Go and find out yourself. Go to the store, order online. Unbelievable, the chocolate cake. And they even have a cake shake. They take the cake, they smoosh it into a can with some super cool ingredients. I don't know, they do a bunch of stuff. There's ice cream, and all of a sudden you got a chocolate cake shake. When it comes out of the blender, it's the best. It is a unique dining experience every time. Go to portillos.com, find a location near you. You can order online. P O R T I L L O S. Portillos. Okay, so 10 years after the release of American Graffiti, we had the release of a very different movie, but another movie that had a huge impact on the culture, another movie that had a very popular soundtrack, another movie that featured a young cast of mostly unknowns, and another movie that did way more, way more business than it folks had expected it to do. We're talking about risky business. You know, we've talked about Tom Cruise and again, 40 years ago, over that four decade span, there have been maybe three or four years where Tom Cruise, and it was usually because of some bouncing on the couch hijinks, not really his movies. He's never really had a long dry period of more than a couple of years. For 40 years, he's been a huge movie star. And it all started with uh, risky business, of course. You're talking about the soundtrack, "Old Time Rock and Roll" by Bob Seger. Uh, in the air tonight, the famous scene on the L train in Chicago, and the Tangerine Dream soundtrack, which became very famous uh, in and of itself. So your folks are going out of town. Just use your best judgment. You know we trust you. Got the place all to yourself. <laughs> a good time, Joe. In the privacy of your own home. Just take those old records off the shelf. That's her. She's fantastic. I said listen to her by myself. Did you have a good time last night? I had a great time. Today's music ain't got the same song. Got a trig midterm tomorrow, and I'm being chased by Guido, the killer pimp. Doesn't anyone want to accomplish anything, or do we just want to make money? Make money. Make a lot of money. There's a time for playing it safe, and a time for risky business. I love this film. Yeah, I know people say, oh, it wouldn't get made today. Well, you know, actually, a lot of dark comedies are still getting made. So I, I disagree. I think this movie would still get made. But yes, it's about a kid, Joel Goodman. He's a good man, a kid who lives on the North Shore uh, here in Chicago, where I'm podcasting from, uh, has everything in life, is trying to get into Princeton. Uh, his parents go away and he gets involved with a sex worker named Lana and Guido the Killer Pimp and opens up his own place and basically turns it into a bordello and makes thousands of dollars. And it's, you know, it's pretty dark stuff. It's interesting. Paul Brickman is the writer director of a risky business. Um, he did a film called men don't leave in 1990. Jessica Lang was in there. I believe uh, Chris O'Donnell. I like the film a lot. That's about it for Paul Brickman's filmography. He's done a few other things here and there. And, um, that was of his own choosing. And unfortunately, I think it started with Risky Business. Uh, he wanted 
a darker ending, you know, where, you know, we were thinking, well, you know, Lana in particular, where was she going to go at the end of this story? What, what was her life going to be like? And Joel had been, as a young man, had become incredibly uh, cynical about the ways of the world. And it kind of ended on that note. And the studio decided that they needed the scene of them um, walking in the park together and both deciding that they're going to be do great things, which is fine. But then kind of interlocking their arms, we're thinking, oh, I guess maybe they're going to continue to have some sort of romance. Uh, and that's not exactly the vision Paul Brickman had for that. And he just got sour on Hollywood and the whole process early on. He turned down a Rain Man. He turned down Forrest Gump and a lot of other huge movies. And it was really his choice. I, I think he's still in California and just living a, a quiet life and probably a very peaceful and good life. Um, but when you see that film, you think, oh, my God, this is the, the dawn of a great filmmaker. And it, it never really happened. The film itself, as I said, it holds up very well. It's really funny. It's beautifully shot. I think it's one of the best films uh, that kind of addresses a certain period in a young man's life, very different from American Graffiti, much more like The Graduate in its themes. Uh, terrific cast. So that was 40 years ago, Risky Business. All right. And um, also want to mention, we're moving forward, 73, 83, 93, August of 1993, a film I've talked about before in the podcast. I've written about it. I've uh, hosted screenings of it. I've talked to the, the director and stars many time, uh, times. And talk about when we talk about the cliche of a film holding up. This is the near perfect action, legal, uh, character study, thrillers of all time. We're talking about The Fugitive, August of 1993. All right, ladies and gentlemen, listen up. We have a fugitive that's been on the run for 90 minutes. Average foot speed over uneven ground, barring injury, is four miles an hour. That will give you a radius of six miles. What I want out of each and every one of you is a hard target search of every gas station, residence, warehouse, Farmhouse, hen house, outhouse, or doghouse in this area. Checkpoints will go up at 15 miles. Your fugitive's name is Dr. Richard Kimball. Go get him. You know, you talk about the greatest action movies of all time. I would, ha I would have some Seven Samurai, North by Northwest, Wild Bunch, Enter the Dragon. I'd put Terminator Two, Terminator Two, Judgment Day. I would definitely have Die Hard and Heat on the list. I mean, it, you know, it depends. Too, are we talking heist movie, action movie? Are we talking cowboy western? You know, but when we talk about action movies, I mean, The Fugitive is, of course, a classic action movie. The director is Andrew Davis, the screenplay by Jeb Stewart and David Twoey. Tommy Lee Jones, of course, won Best Supporting Actor, Harrison Ford. And maybe, I don't know, I, I'd, I'd vacillate between this and Witness as my favorite Harrison Ford performances. I think you know, it's a little easy sometimes to say, oh, Harrison Ford has that sort of Gary Cooper thing, which is a huge compliment, by the way. In other words, maybe not the most expressive actor of all time. But he's done a lot of great performances and a lot of great films. But The Fugitive, is he's just perfect there. Turning 40 years old, I want to talk about this movie. 
and a few things to look for if you're watching it for the first time or rewatching it. Of course, there's the famous St. Patrick's Day parade scene uh, where uh, Richard Kimball is being pursued by uh, the U.S. Marshals, led by, of course, uh, Gerard, and uh, as Tommy Lee, Tommy Lee Jones is Gerard, and he disappears into the parade. And I think people know by now that was the actual St. Patrick's Day parade, March 17th, 1993. So only four or five months before The Fugitive re was released, they shot that great scene. Um, and you'll notice that everybody is dressed in huge layers because it was about 15 degrees that day in Chicago, a wind chill factor of minus six. So everybody was super cold and really fascinating to me. And here's another movie you should check out if you haven't had a chance to see it. A movie called Blink was also shooting during the parade that day, guys. Aiden Quinn was playing a Chicago police detective who gets involved with Madeline Stowe's Emma. She was blind, and then she had this operation that would restore her sight. But then does she witness a murder? Is she involved in stuff? It's actually kind of a cool psychological thriller in and of itself. So they were filming the parade scene for Blink about, I want to say about five blocks from the parade scene for The Fugitive. The film crews worked together to make sure they didn't cross paths, although it would have been kind of cool if they had crossed paths. Uh, the the train uh, bus crash in The Fugitive is one of the great practical effects scenes of all time. They use some miniatures, but essentially they shot it in real time. No special effects, essentially. They had basically one taken about a hundred, uh, many cameras. They didn't have hundred cameras, but they had like eight cameras. And it was interesting because um, even though the story is set in and around Chicago and downstate Illinois, they did film that in Asheville, North Carolina, guys. I was there a couple of years ago and actually uh, I had heard that the, the train, uh, the freight train and the bus were still there in the site in Nashville, North Carolina. And sure enough, they are. I think they thought it was going to be a tourist attraction and now it's just sort of there by the side of the river. It's kind of hard to get to unless you're actually on the river, but you can park on a street called Haywood road and, and go down the slope a little bit and you can actually view the records. You can see the freight train from what they call the Illinois Southern railroad, the prison bus. They're right there. Uh, and the great smoking mountain railroads, they own the locomotives and the bus. So they, they're not going to remove the, the wreckage anytime soon. So if you ever find yourself, in Asheville, it's actually about, I should say, it's about 50 miles outside of Asheville, South uh, North Carolina, excuse me, Asheville, North Carolina. It's a great town. I should get this right. It's about 50 miles outside of the great, and it is, by the way, Asheville, North Carolina is a really cool kind of like, uh, almost like a town like Boulder, Colorado, you know, very cool artist, artisty, uh, liberal. And I mean that in the best possible way, very tolerant, laid back, great music, great restaurants. But anyway, if, if you're, if you're staying in Asheville, which is pretty big tourist attraction at this point, you just need to rent a car, find your way out to the site. And it's pretty cool. So the fugitive came out, uh, 30 years ago, risky business, 40 years ago, American graffiti, 50 years ago, three great movies that came out in the month of August. Let's wrap it up on that great note. We'll have reviews next time. Got some reviews of stuff coming out. Uh, and of course, everything that's happening in the world of pop culture, all of that and more on the next Richard Roper podcast. If you haven't seen these three movies, please make a little mini film festival out of them. Or if you have seen them and it's been a while, as was the case with me, I rewatched them so I could talk to you guys. They make great, repeatable films. All right, everybody, take care.